Section 2, Chapter 7. Hashpas HaKechavim, the influence of the stars. What we're going to be talking about in this chapter is astrology. We're not going to get deep into it, but at least the concept of what it means and why it actually might be relevant. And uh, what he's not going to discuss is the modern astrology. I have some preconceived notions about astrology. Most people do, especially you gr- grow up in the Western world, and it seems absurd. The concept is uh, is ridiculous because you see the horoscopes section of the newspaper, and it's all <laughs> right. It's laughable. But we're going to see that there's there might be something more to it than we might have previously thought. But before we get there, let's let's jump in with number one. We've already discussed back in section number one that anything that happens here in this world, in the physical world, is first rooted in the spiritual world. So things originate in the spiritual realm. And they show up exactly as they were in their potential form in the spiritual realm. They show up exactly the same, copied into this world. Manifest. So, in order to facilitate that, Hashem prepared the he uses an interesting word here, galgalim, which means spheres. We could probably translate that as galaxies. So galaxies and the stars and heavenly bodies, planetary bodies that exist there within, that through those and their orbital paths, the way their movements and their spinning and turning, through all of that, it generates a conduit of being able to draw down that energy from the spiritual world that manifests here on earth in the physical world. In fact, it, it seems a bit strange because you would say those are also physical. Well, that's exactly what I was about to say is I, I don't understand that part. Right. So the Rambam describes, even though we know from a scientific perspective that things in the in the universe, in the heavenly realms, the, the other galaxies... They are made of physical material. It's true. The Rambam describes that although that is true, they are a step closer to spirituality. They still exist within the physical realm, but they are on the outer limits of these concentric realms. So the inner. He's talking about as we get out into space, the farther we get out, the more, the, the closer it comes to the spiritual. I don't know if that's true. It might be true. Uh, but what he says is that within the Earth's atmosphere, that is the destination for all energy. And then beyond the Earth's atmosphere, you have everything else in the universe, essentially. And all of that is one step removed from the destination of physicality, which is here. And even though those things are also physical, they are closer to spirituality. Now, is it true that when you go physically farther away from Earth, it becomes more and more spiritual? I'm not sure. I think maybe, astronauts maybe would tell not. you it does. That it gets less physical? That it gets more spiritual. Oh, the, more ones, <laughs> the ones who have uh, been on the journeys, at least, they'll, they'll tell you. 
it's like a known thing. We got to, uh, when I was at NASA, we got to like routinely go and listen to astronauts and, you know, big famous people like Gene Krantz. Um, they would just come speak in an auditorium. They'd let us know like in the morning, like, hey, Gene Krantz is going to come talk in the auditorium this afternoon if you want to show up. And so people would just like leave what they were doing at work and just go sit in the auditorium and listen to like this legend in the space industry. What did he say? Um, Gene Kranz talked about the Apollo era and like, you know, what it was like in mission control. It was, it was cool. Definitely an awesome guy. Like he's the type of guy who should be running NASA now, but he's not. Um, but the astronauts say that it's, it's like a, it's a spiritual experience being out there and recognizing so clearly that we're designed to be there, you know, on earth, you know, they're looking at the only place probably in the universe that could just support us. Um, that, that's, that seems designed for us or we're designed for it. It doesn't matter. Um, and now we're like venturing farther outside of it and you get to look at the only place that's really our home. Um, yeah, they described it as a very spiritual experience. And I've heard secondhand accounts of uh, that same idea from the people who touched the moon. Interesting. So, right, that, that experience might be a different, it might be an experience of awe. Mm -hmm. not, maybe not necessarily being there. You're in a higher dimensional realm or a higher spiritually dimensional realm. You don't think that connects you to the... Could be. You're at Hashem? Might, might be. Uh, I'm not sure. I have, when I experience it, I'll, I'll let you know all right. how, I, how I feel. It's, it's probably, I wouldn't hold your breath. <laughs> well, there's not much oxygen up there, so I would have to. <laughs> it wouldn't help. This geocentric view of reality also might seem strange to us in, the, in our post-Copernicus world that like, Earth is the destination of everything, even though we know that the Earth is in an orbital path around the sun. Mm -hmm. I don't, I'm not sure if we've discussed this on this podcast before. Uh, I, I don't think so. Please continue. Well, that might be true physically. It doesn't necessarily mean that the Earth is not the destination for all of the energy of reality. Just right. because the Earth happens to be orbiting the sun, that could just be part of the system, but it's designed in a way that everything services the earth. There's another principle that reality is defined from within our perspective. And so then, of course, earth is the center of reality. I've heard some, uh, some interesting theories. Uh, I mean, even though the earth rotates around the sun, um, there, there are certainly ways, and, and they're not, they're not justifiable, uh, like as, an, as a hypothesis, it doesn't meet most of the criteria as far as, you know, being the simplest thing that can explain the way things work. But you could definitely design a system where you have the Earth rotating around the sun and, you know, everything in our solar system is rotating around the sun um, and then the sun is rotating around some black hole at the center of the galaxy, et cetera, et cetera. And yet you could still design a system where the Earth is the center of that. Fascinating. Well, this is the system that he's describing, that all of these heavenly bodies exist in an outer realm. It is very clear. There's a delineation from 
our atmosphere, the Earth's atmosphere, to the rest of the planetary bodies. And all of those are the conduits for transferring energy from the spiritual world down here to Earth. Va'amnam. Now, the number of planets and stars and all these heavenly bodies that exist in all of their different sections, it's all exact. It's not just that these things are random and scattered around the universe and they also happen to serve this function. They are created for this function and each one of them is necessary that Hashem decreed for facilitating what needs to happen here on Earth, which is mind-boggling. How, how does some galaxy at the other end of the universe have any sort of play in what's happening here on Earth? I don't know the answer to that question. Well, I think it, it and I know it might be too specific a question, but I mean, if we can almost perfectly predict the movement of celestial bodies and those are what's determining the reality that we live in then why can't we predict what occurs in reality the, this is a fascinating question this is by the way the concept of astrology but we're way ahead of ourselves okay all right now from these stars you have the influence of energy that then supports the basic existence of physical reality here on Earth. They are what's funneling that source energy that is destined to arrive here from the spiritual world. Number two. There's another function that's embedded within these heavenly bodies as well. It's not just facilitating the basic physical energy that makes a chair exist here in this world. There, there's another function as well, and that's It's also things that happen in this world. It's not just the basic existence, but also traits and things that occur, events. Once they've been prepared in the higher realms. They are then drawn forth from those heavenly realms where everything is decreed by Hashem and channeled through the stars and then manifest here in this world. For example, life, wealth, intelligence and children being born, all of these things that happen, and even on a personal level, traits. All of these things are first determined in the spiritual realm. They're first decreed in the spiritual roots of reality. Now, up there, it's still very generalized, the concept of intelligence, for example that energy of intelligence exists in the higher realms, then comes down filtered through the various spiritual realms, through branches, becomes more and more specific until it's funneled through the stars and manifests very specifically as your intelligence. And it 
it takes on also the flavor and the style of that particular heavenly body, star, or planet that it was channeled through. Hmm. And it's also not random. There is a system for how all of these things are channeled, and each of the stars has a very specific role to play. And everything that happens down here in the physical world is divided among these stars to channel. Nothing else happens without that. It's all funneled through the heavenly realms. All of the physical world is now tied together under the influence of the stars according to their order and how they're moving so that things might happen in this world and there's an influence that's coming from this system. That's actually a wild statement. So anyone at, at any time period, you could have thought about just the, the sheer number of events and you'd say, yeah, it's, it's infinite or it's, you know, gajillions. Um, but you know what I mean? Like it's, it's as close to infinite as, as anything that we could possibly imagine. Just the number of events, all the events that happen, everything. Um, but it was only like extremely recently that people knew for sure that there was more than like 10,000 stars in the sky. There's 10,000 ish visible stars mm. without light pollution. Um, you know, you get a telescope and that goes up pretty significantly, like an old telescope, Galileo style, but you're not in the billions of stars until the very modern era when we start, like the Hubble was when we realized, like, there's other galaxies. That's what we're looking at out there. Um, and those all have, like, you know, same 400 billion stars or thereabouts. Uh there's at least 400 billion of those that we can see right now. So it's only like extremely recently that we realized like for sure this at the very least goes on beyond anything that we can comprehend. And right. It's a big system. Yeah. Well, he very confidently says it right here. Um, so now we're seeing something fascinating. We're seeing that not only we, we knew before that physicality is a manifestation of spirituality. And we're seeing now that it's, it's being expressed through a system. It shows up here in this world from a very complicated physical system that exists in the universe, which is all of the galaxies of the universe, are really a machine that are channeling energy through their rotations and the essence of what they're made of that are providing spiritual energy, transferring it from a higher spiritual realm, an upper dimension, into our world here and what everything that's happening here in this world. Number three. So every single individual, every person, is subjugated to this system. We're all affected by it. Anything that happens to you in your life first is channeled through the stars. 
Vamnum, Kavar Efsha Shetu Vutal told us Hakoyhovim, Mikoyak Chazak Elyon Mehem. Now, having said that, it is possible to nullify the effects of these energies from the from the stars and the heavenly realms. And that comes through divine intervention. And it's based on that concept that the Talmud says, Ein Mazal Yisrael. Now, by the way, the word Mazal, Mazatov, right? What is Mazal? Uh, it's a, um, is it a time period? No. People might translate it as luck, maybe. Uh, right, but well, I, I know it's not that. Well, it, it actually might be. I'm not sure what the original concept of luck is. Nowadays, we treat luck as things should randomly happen well for you. But I think that in older cultures, they treated luck as something real, fortune. And it, it might actually be a similar concept to mazel. But what mazel really means, it comes from the word, etymologically speaking, it comes from the word nozel, which means to flow. Mm. So mazel is the flow of energy from the stars down into this world. So when you say mazel tov to someone, it's it's a blessing. You're wishing them that the mazel that they're receiving should be good. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. All right. I'm I'm understanding this. So now, yeah. So every person is subjugated to his or her mazel when a person is born under certain circumstances. There's a certain time of the year where stars in the sky are present where they wouldn't be in other times of the year. And those have active energies that are influencing the world at those times. And the specific day of the week and the specific hour of the day, all of these come into play because of the positioning of heavenly bodies. It's all real and it all has an effect on the person, what's going to happen to them in their life, what kind of traits they'll have, uh, their personality, their physical traits. All of these things are influenced to some degree, not completely, but influenced by the positioning of the stars. Well, this actually, and this is what I'm, there's part of me that always wondered why why the planets played you know such a large role. But I mean, as far as we're concerned, the planets are going to be the things that change the most, like from person to person. Over the course of a year, the stars don't change that much, but the planets will change wildly. So that actually makes sense that that, that would be the, the focus if that's what's changing. I mean, if everything's being filtered through that, that's the final filtration stage, I guess, before coming down to us in physicality. You're saying planets within our solar system. Right. So actually, the, the Talmud does say that every hour of the day, is dominated by an energy of one planet. And by the way, when we say planets, we're talking about the sun and the moon are both counted because it doesn't really matter sure. how, right? We're talking about heavenly bodies. Celestial, oh, and yeah. Right, so the sun and the moon are, are two of them, and then it goes from Mercury, Venus, Mars, uh, Saturn, and Jupiter, mm -hmm. and that's it. So these seven... That's fair, that, that's it. Right. So these seven are the ones that cycle through seven-hour periods of the day. Each hour is dominated by one of these planets, planetary bodies at least, and then the cycle restarts. Hmm. However, the month of the year, 
also plays a role because that's a regular cycle. If you would look up into the sky, you will see over the course of a year, an entire cycle of how the stars look because of the revolution of the earth around the sun. By the way, the horoscopes that you might have heard of and you know your sign, this is something that is recognized by Torah, that it's real. Because there is an influence in these 12 constellations. You can break up the sky into 12 sections. Each lunar cycle will also represent that time period where a certain part of the sky is present. And so therefore, these energies are real. Now, there is a certain degree of overlap of Torah sources that verify what a lot of non-Jewish sources say about astrology and the energies that are present in a person's sign. But it's extraordinarily complicated, and it's really not part of the Torah tradition. The Torah recognizes it as a reality as much as basic physics, but the Torah also doesn't teach physics <laughs> because it's not really relevant. I don't know. This sounds like a kind of cool uh, skill or ability to have. I mean, what is what what do you gain uh, with with this? I mean, like if someone were a a master at this or what the Torah says can be done with them, because I, I would imagine that. It's not going to tell you that you can predict the future. Um, so, I mean, is it basically you'd be good at giving Excellent question. This is actually in number four. Let's finish number three right now, and we'll, okay. come, we'll come right back to this. So the point that we made in number three is that people are dominated by mazel. People's lives are affected by mazel. There is an exception to that, which is if Hashem will intervene with the mazel. There is a somewhat famous statement in the Talmud that says, Ein mazal Israel." There is no mazal for the Jewish people, which means a number of things. Some people erroneously believe that the Jews are not affected by mazal at all. And that is not true. Every person is affected by mazal, just like everyone's affected by physics. What it means is that the Jewish people have a unique capacity to override mazal through a deep connection to Hashem. If there would be a necessity for it, like, for example, Hashem splitting the sea, that would be an override of the system. Hashem has now intervened with reality. And if there is an override of Mazel, it will look like that in the physical world, just like there has been a very clear interruption to the normal processes in the spiritual world and in the heavenly bodies. There is going to, in the physical world, show up something that doesn't look right like these miraculous events that take place. The Gemara, the Talmud, gives a couple examples of, on a personal level, someone who did a great act of kindness, for example, that was uh, maybe for their level superhuman, and then they merited a miraculous salvation. And that, that was brought in the context, the Talmud says, as an override of their mazel, of what would have happened to this person. And it does show up miraculously. So it is possible to interrupt and override the system, and that is if you have connections with the boss. So that's what we learned in number three. Number four. The Amnam Mishpatehash Bal Hazoy Shilko Chavim. Gam Haim Mugbalim Kifimasha Gazar Chachbel Yona Hyos knows. Now, the laws, the rules of how the influence operates coming from the stars. It also has definitions. 
and it's able to be studied and learned. Some of its ways are known to, quote-unquote, the stargazers, astrologists of those times, of early times. This is what these stargazers and astrologists were able to look into the sky and interpret the movements of the stars and the positioning of heavenly bodies and recognize what implications that will have in this world. But we should know that not all of the ways of these operations are revealed and known to astrologists, even experts. So even if someone does have a mastery over this skill of being able to interpret the stars, they won't be able to confidently predict the future. Even without interruption, even without free will or intervention from Hashem, it, it is not possible to have a complete knowledge of the future just based on this method because we don't have uh, a complete knowledge of the system. It's too complicated. We know basic principles. Well, and also principles. that would, it, it would imply cutting out God, right? Not necessarily. It's, you know, it's similar to, I heard this analogy once, it's very good. If you would take a seed and bring it to a farmer and the farmer will tell you, he'll look at the seed and he'll tell you, you know what, if you drop this now in this soil, then you come back in a couple of years and it's going to look like this. And then if you wait 10 or 15 years, there's going to be this big tree here. It's going to look like this. It's going to have these leaves and these branches. You wouldn't be able to, you're looking at a seed. You don't see any tree here. So this person is predicting the future. He's not predicting the future. He knows seeds. He understands how the world works and the natural processes of things. And he understands that if without intervention, as far as he knows, if nothing else changes, the normal thing that should happen is the seed will grow into this kind of tree. He just knows the process. Now, there, are, there might be a multitude of factors that could affect that tree. It, there might be what he's telling you is a 90% chance that it's going to look exactly the way that he predicts. But it could be that there's something, some chemicals in the ground or some other variable that will affect the outcome of this tree, that it might not grow at all, or it might have a defect or something. And so he's using his knowledge of seeds to be able to, quote unquote, predict the future, but it's not real. he's not looking into the future. Uh, he's not seeing what's going to happen. He just sees causes and is predicting effects. And that, that's the same thing that's happening here with astrologists. They're seeing the position of these stars should indicate this is going to happen in the world. Um, tomorrow, next week. And this is very different than a prophet because the, the laws for a prophet, if the prophet tells you, now a prophet can predict the future because what a prophet is doing is he is directly channeling Hashem. And we'll speak about prophecy later in this book, actually somewhat soon. If he says that there will be 512 people at this event and there's 511, you kill him. I mean, not, not really, but that is the law. He is considered a false prophet. If he's off even by a, the slightest amount, then he's a false prophet. That's the difference between a prophet and a stargazer is the prophet has absolute truth. 
It's much better longevity in being a stargazer, it sounds like. <laughs> True. It's better for your health. It's all, it's also easier. <laughs> so an astrologist will be able to predict probably what's going to happen. There might be things that will, uh, that there are other variables that he's not aware of. And he says, all the more so the that there's, there's also the possibility of any of these effects being just canceled by Hashem. So it's not 100% reliable. And that's what our sages said from it and not all of it, which is a reference to the, the Talmud brings a verse from the book of Yeshaya that says that the stargazers are telling you some of it. And so the sages jumped on that verse and so you see here that they don't have complete information. They're able to predict a certain amount with a certain level of accuracy, as we've explained. Now, nowadays, this art, let's call it, I don't know, it's not really a science because it's not empirically derived. Mm. Let's call it a skill. This skill has been largely lost from humanity. We still know a lot of the basic principles of uh, you know, a remnant, a, a very hollow shell of what used to be very reliable astrology. And so at this point, it's not even worth discussing or talking about because it, it's too far diluted from what it used to be. However, there used to be real experts in this. And actually many of the sages that are brought down in the Talmud were experts in this as well. Let's say theoretically, if you encountered an expert in astrology, are you allowed to ask him what's going to happen in the future? What, what use of this, what use is there really of this? Right, that was a little bit, of, I mean, that's basically my question from before is what, what could you do with this? So there are two things. One is you can gain insight into the basic nature of things. If you were able to know the exact mazel that you were born under, it might give you a lot of information about yourself that you might not be aware of. And it might provide a lot of insight and you'll realize, oh, that's why I behave like this. And, you know, these are my strengths and these are my weaknesses. A lot of that information can be very helpful for your growth process. And there is actually nothing if wrong. If you're going to use it to, to grow and not make excuses. Exactly. Well, yeah, of course. I can't help it. I'm a Sagittarius. Right. <laughs> and there is actually nothing wrong with that. If you had this information, and by the way, we, we still do have a lot of information from reliable Jewish sources, ancient sources from Kabbalists that do talk about principles of mazel and how to interpret them. And so there, there really is nothing wrong with that. Where it gets problematic is what we were just speaking about, predicting the future. There is a verse in the Torah that says, Tamim Be simple with Hashem your God. Be simple. So Rashi says that the explanation of that verse is, don't try to figure out what's going to happen in the future. And so many of the commentaries understand that this is an explicit prohibition from seeking out astrologers and fortune tellers. Take things simply. Walk normally. Take things as they come. Make the right decisions based on your Torah knowledge. Don't try to hack the system. Hmm. The question is now, what if a verified astrologer 
will come to you and tell you, if you don't do X, Y, and Z, or, or he'll tell you your house is about to get struck by lightning and, and burn down. You know, so what do you do then? The Rambam very famously said in, in a couple places that all of this about astrology, and it's all nonsense, which is, fa- I mean, it's really interesting. The Rambam says, has this take on a lot of areas of Kabbalah, which is perplexing because most commentaries are very assertive that the Rambam was a master Kabbalist as well. So it's a very interesting take. And he said, therefore, it would be absolutely forbidden to listen to this person because it's all nonsense. There are theories about why the Rambam had this position, but he does say that. Well, so would it be forbidden to listen to uh, a person speaking nonsense about something else, or is it forbidden in this case because he's suggesting that it's power that comes from somewhere other than Hashem? He's suggesting that it would be a violation of be simple with Hashem. Okay. Right? You're buying into all this heebie-jeebie nonsense. Just be simple. So not only would it be a prohibition to seek out an astrologer, but to listen and get engaged and sucked into all of it would also be problematic as well. However, there are dissenting opinions, and probably the majority opinion. The Rashba, for example, writes in a in a responsa that if, again, it is a prohibition to seek out an astrologer, but if he, again, someone who's verified as a master of this, would tell you, for example, your house is going to burn down, not only is it not a prohibition to listen to him, it is prohibited not to listen to him. Because he says, We cannot rely on miracles. This person knows what he's talking about. If he says, now you're not allowed to ask, but if he comes and gives you that information, so you have to take action. Can I like ask about his credentials? Of course. Okay. Right. That's why he said verified, right? right? Yeah. Again, nowadays, probably not relevant because it's mostly charlatans. Uh, does anyone have very accurate information about this? I don't know. I'm not aware of anyone. But the point of all of this is there is a system in place. The stars are a machine that channel divine energy from the spiritual realm that manifests into the physical realm. Everything that happens here channels first through the stars. It theoretically is possible to read that and understand the nature of physical reality and also possibly what's coming, but we just don't have access to it anymore. It just, uh, when you said the stars are a machine, it like hit me. I mean, I, I, don't, I don't know why I never thought of it that way before. Obviously, you know I'm a huge space nerd. Um, and I've thought about the universe a great deal. Um, but I don't think I ever contemplated the universe as a machine. But of course it is. Of course it is. Like, as an engineer, if I want to do something that I couldn't do with my hands, I'll build a machine or a tool for it. Sure. Hashem created the universe. We know it was for a purpose. So clearly it's a machine for achieving that purpose. I would say even without a religious perspective, if someone would tell a modern scientist that if you look into an atom and the makeup of an atom and tell them that, oh, it's all just random, there's like random stuff in there, it's just kind of scattered. 
he'll think you're a fool because you just well, don't I know anything. It's it's more accurate than you might think. But <laughs> well, there are a specific number of protons and neutrons and electrons, right. and the structure is regular, and it, it's all for a reason, and they're at a certain distance from the nucleus. Is this accurate? Uh, I, I'm not going to make any statements at all about what electrons are doing. Okay, fair enough. Yeah, me neither. Right. I'll, I'll take it back. But I assume that there's some sort of system and structure to it. It's being held together. I like to think that there is. Right. So is it any wonder that the same would apply to the entire universe? That, okay, this, on a, on a very small scale, of course it has to be structured. But on the largest scale, it's all just random. <laughs> right, right. It would be a, it would be an interesting bit of symmetry, just because our understanding of physics really breaks down as things get small, and things seem to violate physics as we know it. There would be a certain amount of like poetic symmetry there if, as things got really big, they also broke down. But we haven't observed that. Uh, the we we understand so little. It what, what, I think what you meant to say is it seems to break down according to our understanding. Right. We just we just stop understanding what's happening at a certain point. Yeah. Well, that concludes chapter seven, and we'll begin chapter eight next week. It's fascinating stuff. Thank you, Rabbi. <laughs>